think if we ever stopped to think about it, we would come to the conclusion that Christmas is the strangest story ever told. We've grown so accustomed to the story, we, uh, we don't realize how odd the tale really is. It's a story of two homeless young people. If they lived today, they would probably be in the ninth or tenth grade that uh, made their way to a very small town. Bethlehem uh, would not be known outside the land of Palestine any more than uh, Elk City or Smith's Prairie is known outside the state of Idaho. And uh, they made their way down into a hole in the ground. When the inn was shut in their face, the door to the inn was closed. They went uh, down into a cavern where herdsmen uh, kept their animals. And that night, Mary gave birth to a little baby, who it turned out was God. That's the strangest story that's, that's ever been told. G.K. Chesterton said, the infinite became infinitesimal. That uh, cavern in Bethlehem was the center of the world at that point, and the center was very, very small. Now, have you ever thought about that? We've grown so accustomed to the story, we've forgotten how strange it really is. That baby in the manger was God on earth. Luke tells his story one way. The Apostle Paul tells the Christmas story another way. He wrote a poem to commemorate the event, and it's found in the second chapter of Philippians. Will you turn with me to Philippians 2, chapter 2, verse 6. It's not apparent in the New American Standard Bible that Paul wrote a poem. It looks like prose in chapter 2, but if you have a new international version, you'll see that it's free verse uh, poetry. Paul wrote a poem about the incarnation. It begins in verse 6. Philippians 2, 6. Who, though he, that is Christ Jesus, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality, or did, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what Christians call the incarnation. Incarnation means embodiment. God was made flesh. As John puts it in, uh, in his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the central fact of Christian faith. God became a man. Paul wrote a poem about it, and he had two basic ideas in the poem, ideas that revolve around the two main verbs. As God, Jesus, emptied himself, and as man, he humbled himself. And everything in the, in the poem revolves around those two ideas. He emptied himself, and he humbled himself. Now, what Paul wants to establish at the very outset in this poem is that Jesus Christ was God. He states it unequivocally. You cannot miss it. He tells us that um, Jesus existed in the form of God. We were talking about this passage this past week, and 
one of the people in the discussion said, what, what, what form does Jesus have, or did God have? What shape is he in? What shape does he have? Which is the obvious question that you would raise with uh, a statement like this. Jesus was in the form of God, because our English word form has in it the idea of shape. The question readily comes to mind. What sort of body does God have? Therefore, what sort of body did Jesus have? But that's not what Paul has in mind. God doesn't have a body. Jesus told the woman at the well that he's spirit, pure spirit. Paul wrote to Timothy and and, uh, said that God is invisible. He's not corporeal. He's not contained in a body. He doesn't have a shape. He doesn't have a form as we know it. He's invisible. He's a spirit. He is spirit, pure spirit. He's not confined to time and space. So what does Paul mean when he tells us that Jesus was in the form of God. Greek is a very precise language, and Paul uses it very precisely. The word that he chose for form is a word that means the outward expression of some internal reality. In other words, if, if, we, if we had been in heaven prior to the incarnation and we could have seen God, you can't see God because he's invisible, but if you could see God at work, he would be acting exactly as you would expect God to act. He would speak and the universe would come into being. Uh, He would control the affairs of nations and individuals. He, He acted as you would expect God to act. He was God, and because he was God, he did the things that you'd normally expect God to do. He was minding the store prior to the incarnation, and we would see it. Now, that's what Paul means when he, he says in his pre-incarnate state, Christ Jesus was in the form of God. In other words, he was God, and he acted like God. If we could have seen him at work, we would have seen him doing God-like things, the sort of things that you would expect God to do. Furthermore, Paul says that he existed in that form. There are a lot of words for being in the Greek language, but this is the one that, that means to be unalterably. Irrevocably, eternally. Uh, if, I were, if I were an ancient Greek and I were to say to you, uh, I'm a philosopher, uh, I would use another word because I might not be a philosopher tomorrow. I might lose my job and uh, I'd end up digging ditches or, uh, or working, uh, delivering mail or something. Being a philosopher is something that changes from day to day. But if I were to say to you, I am a man, I would use this word. Because the word means to be unalterably a man. I've always been a man. It's the way I was born. Even though I was a child, I was a man. I'm a man today. I, I plan to be a man for the rest of my life. I don't think it'll ever change. I'm a man, and I would use this word. That's the word that Paul had in mind. That's the thought that Paul had in mind, that Jesus Christ eternally existed as God. He was God. That's one of those non-negotiables of Christian faith. There, there are a lot of... There are a lot of things that Christians believe that we can give on because they're not essentials. But this is one of those essentials. Jesus Christ was fully God. As the Nicene Creed puts it, he was very God of very God of one substance with the Father. That's what Christians have always believed. That's one we can go to the wall for. That's one we can fight for. Uh, Back in the 4th century, uh, Constantine, who was the emperor of Rome at the time, was trying to keep peace in the empire, 
trying to bring together the pagan elements and the Christian elements within the Roman Empire, and, and the church was fragmenting uh, over this issue of the deity of Christ. And uh, their concern was uh, how to describe the two natures of Christ and how can two things be one and how can one thing be two and, and how can Jesus be God and on earth and you know how do you put all these things together? It was splitting the church. There's a man named Arius who taught that there was a time when Jesus was not. In other words, he was not eternally God. That he was of the same substance or similar substance, but he wasn't one in substance with the Father. There was another man who was his bishop. His name is Athanasius. He was the bishop of Alexandria in North Africa. And Athanasius taught that Jesus was God. The church was divided over this issue. So Constantine got, got everyone together and he said, Now, boys, let's, uh, let's get together. Let's agree. We can't permit this thing to split the church. There are more important things, the unity of the empire, to be considered. And uh, Athanasius wouldn't budge. Constantine said to him, you pertinacious old man, unyielding old man, don't you know that the world stands against you? Now, he wasn't talking about the Christian world because the Christian world, by and large, agreed with Athanasius. He was talking about the Roman Empire and the might and the power of the empire. He said, don't you know that the whole empire stands against you? And Athanasius said, then I stand against the whole world. That's the sort of thing we can't give on. We can't budge. It's taught. In all of scripture that, that our Lord was unalterably, eternally God. That was his character. He existed, Paul says, in the form of God. But uh, he did not regard that equality with God to be something he should forcibly retain or to clutch, to grasp, to hang on to, according to, to verse 6. But he emptied himself. And that raises the question, emptied himself of what? The word simply means to empty something from one container into another or empty a container out of, you know, the contents out of a container. That's what the word means, empty something. Well, the question is, of what did Jesus empty himself? Did he empty himself of his deity? Did he lay aside his godhood and, and simply become a man? What, of what did he empty himself? Well, Paul tells us. The verse, the clauses that follow, the phrases that follow explain that statement. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and was made in the likeness of men. That was his emptying. He took upon himself the form of a bondservant. In other words, he became subject to another. He became subject to his father. He gave up then the independent use of his attributes as God. And he was made in the likeness of man. Now, that doesn't mean he was a pretend man. It wasn't like Superman who, uh, who looked like Clark Kent on the outside, but really underneath he had supernatural powers. He didn't have any supernatural powers as a man. He divested himself, not of his deity, but of the use of his deity. He laid that all aside, and he, and he acted as we acted, as we acted in, in, the, in our flesh. He, he was a man wholly dependent upon God. That's why he said, whatever I see the Father doing, that's what I do. Whatever I see the, hear the Father saying, that's what I say. Of myself, he says in John 5, I can do nothing. How much could Jesus do on his own? Absolutely nothing. Of myself, he said, I can do nothing. 
So he was limited in space. He wasn't omnipresent. He was limited to a human body. He was limited in time. He gave up his omniscience. He didn't know everything. He had to learn things, just as you and I have to learn. He gave up his omnipotence, that is, his power. Uh, I'm sure our Lord was a very strong man because he was a laborer, but he wasn't any stronger than any other laborer. He couldn't clean and jerk a thousand pounds. He, he, he was limited in his strength, you see. He set all that aside. He emptied himself. He divested himself of the independent use of his attributes as God, and he became, just as you and I, wholly dependent upon the Father for everything. I read a theologian this past week who said, well, this uh, emptying is very much like the sort of thing we do when we play baseball with our kids. You remember that? Remember when you taught your kids to bat? You'd get them up there and you'd lob the ball in, you know, and they'd whiff and you'd lob it in even, you know, you'd make a softer throw and they'd finally hit it. And then after an hour or so of doing that, you, you would get frustrated a little bit with lobbing the ball and you'd just rear back and wing it in there, you know. And your, and your son would say, oh, Dad, come on. You know, or you're, or you're batting pop flies to your kids and you're hitting little flies to them and, and all of a sudden you, you just pick up the ball and you whack it over the left field fence because you just want to show them what you can do. <laughs> and, uh, and, and this theologian said, now that's the way it was with Jesus. He limited himself mostly, but every once in a while he just reared back and let her rip. And he'd still the storm, or he walked on the water, or he changed water into wine. But you see, that's a denial of what Jesus himself says in John 5. I can do nothing of myself. He wasn't pulling rank. He wasn't reaching back for his deity and, and acting as God. He was still acting as man, dependent upon God. If the Father wanted him to walk on the water, then he could rely on the Father to do it. And I'm convinced if God wanted you to walk on the water, he could give you the same power. It's just that he hasn't granted you that uh, power because he doesn't want you to. That's why Jesus had such uncanny insight into the character and nature of men and women. It's not because he was omniscient. He couldn't see into their hearts. He was dependent upon the Father. He was a prophet. And the Father revealed to him the truth that he needed to know. Have you ever thought about that condescension? That is incredible when you think about it. The God of the universe, for a time, contracted, in, contracted into a span, into a little bitty baby that had to be cared for by his mother and by Joseph, who grew up limited, given the same limitations that, that you and I have. He emptied himself of the independent use of his privileges, his prerogatives, his rights as God, and he became a man. And when he became a man, then he humbled himself. He didn't walk around demanding his rights. He didn't insist that everyone treat him as God. When they nailed him to the cross, he didn't say, Do you realize what you're doing and who you're doing this to? I'm the Lord of glory. What right do you have to treat me this way? You couldn't even live and move or have your being were it not for me. But he never told anyone precisely who he was. He never demanded his rights he was, as Isaiah calls him, the God who hides himself. He didn't stalk around, stamp his foot, and demand that everyone recognize who he was. He humbled himself, his man. And Paul tells us he became obedient to the point of death. Read the text carefully. He does not say he became obedient to death. He was the master of it. 
But uh, he obeyed to the point of death. He, that's how far he went. You see, one mark of manhood is that we die. We live for a while and we die. The, the death rate has been 100% for the human race, almost, from the very beginning. And, and that's how far he went in the incarnation. He went to the point of dying. Uh, as the hymn puts it, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies." I can't explain that. But he did. He went to that point, even death on a cross. If he lived today, it would be death by a firing squad or death in the electric chair because he died the death of a common criminal. That's how far God went in the incarnation. He held nothing back. He went all the way. And that's the Christmas story, see? It's incredible. Startling. Humbling to us to realize that our Lord went that far in his condescension for us. This passage is one of the most profound and one of the most baffling passages in the New Testament. You can read uh, tomes, theological tomes on this, on this passage. A lot of very, very complex thinking here, difficult concepts, things that are hard to untangle. You know why he wrote this, uh, this poem? You know why it's in the book? Because there were two people in Philippi that couldn't get along. They, they, were, they were quarreling with each other. They'd gotten uptight. And uh, the church was taking sides, one side against another side. I think the whole book of Philippians was written for those two people. Let me show you why I believe that. Turn to chapter 4, verse 2. I urge Eodia, and I urge Syndicate to live in harmony in the Lord. Let's get along. Uh, these are women's names, Iodia and Syndicate. These were two ladies, uh, two women in the church in Philippi that, that had gotten crosswise with each other, just couldn't, couldn't get along, couldn't work out their problem. Now, unless you think that Paul is stereotyping women and saying, well, that's the sort of thing you expect of, of a woman, you know, that, that's, you know, these are two little old maids that just can't get along and they're bickering over non-essentials. Let me explain what was going on here. Paul understood disagreements. You remember, he had one with Barnabas. He had a very large agreement with Barnabas, so big that it split their partnership up. So he's not saying, ah, it's the sort of thing you could expect from women. And besides, these women were Paul's co-workers. He tells us in the next verse. Uh, he says, indeed, true comrade. Now, that may be a proper name. It may be the name of someone in Philippi or maybe just a friend of Paul, an associate of Paul, whom he calls upon to help these women. Indeed, true comrade, I, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also. Clement was a famous man in the early church. Well known outside the Bible as a church leader. And these women are associated with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers who name her in the book of life. For all I know, these ladies uh, couldn't get along because they had a difference over some point of theology. Maybe one was uh, post-trib and the other was pre-trib. Maybe one believed in a sublapsarian view of, uh, of the divine decrees. The other, uh, the other was uh, an infralapsarianist. 
Uh, I don't know. There's probably some really profound theological difference that they had, but they couldn't work it out. And the church had, had divided up, taken sides, and, uh, and the church was split right down the middle. And this was a serious thing to Paul. Church splits, church divisions are very, very serious. Very serious. The sort of thing we should never permit to happen. Never allow it to happen here. Jesus said in in John 13, that the world will know that we're Christians by our love for each other. The fact that we keep our marriages together, no, no matter how much it costs us. The fact that, that we exist together as a church and love each other despite uh, some theological differences that we may have. The Unless the messengers of the gospel love each other, uh, the message of the gospel that God loves us, has no credibility. We've just got to love each other. It's a serious thing. We should never, ever permit these divisions to arise in our midst here. It's, it's, it's a great tragedy that so many of the churches in, in Boise have divided up on the basis of some little distinctive that, that doesn't matter. Can't get along with anybody else. What, what kind of witness are we giving to the world with, with that lack of unity in the body of Christ? Paul, Paul won't, won't, won't have it, won't put up with it. And apparently at the heart of it in, in Philippi was this disagreement between these two women and the church was choosing up sides. And Paul wrote the whole book in order to get these two women back together again. The reason I believe that is because uh, chapter 4, verse 1 is really the the summation of his argument. He completes the argument at this point. The chapter division is in the wrong place. 4.1 should be uh, should be 3.22. He says, therefore, in other words, in, in conclusion, my beloved brethren, whom I, uh, whom I long to see my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And then he turns to Iodia and, and Syndicate, and he applies the argument of the book up to that point. And if you go back to chapter 1, verse 27, you find the same words. Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you're, same word, standing firm. In one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of, of the gospel. The first 26 verses of the book of Philippians are mostly autobiographical. Paul is bringing these folks up to date, letting them know where he is. As it happens, he was in jail, and he reports on his uh, imprisonment. And then he starts into the argument proper here in verse 27. And the first thing he says is, I want you to stand firm, stand together. When the going gets tough, the tough, unfortunately, get to going at each other sometimes. Let's stop that. And uh, let's, let's, let's start working together. Let's stand firm together. And then he develops that argument through the book until his conclusion in 4.1. When he says, therefore, stand firm. Oh, yes, Iodia, Syntyche, this is for you. Now, I want you to look at chapter 2, verse 1, the section in which our poem is found. Paul says, if, therefore, and, and the if should be since, it's one of those conditional clauses in, in, uh, in the Greek language, which, which does not imply any contingency. He's not saying there's any doubt about this. This is a given. This is an assumption. This is a, a, an incentive, an asset that we have. You can count on this. Since, therefore, there is encouragement in Christ, since there is consolation, 
that comes from his love, since there is fellowship, a sharing in common in the Spirit of Christ, since there is his affection and compassion, and then he makes an appeal to the Philippians based on the assets that they have. Since there is a a, a tremendous encouragement in, in the love of Christ when you stop and think of his love for us, doesn't that encourage you to love people? If he can love me, then he can help me to love anybody. And since there's consolation in his love, consolation sounds like the prize you get when you lose the bake-off contest, and it really does have the idea of a a reward when you don't do as well as you'd like to do. There's comfort that comes from knowing that God loves us anyway, that Jesus loves us despite our failings and weakness and our inability to, to do what we want to do and be what we long to be. That, that's comforting. And, and there's, a, there's an incentive that comes from knowing that the same Spirit of Christ who indwells me indwells you, and therefore we can walk along together. And then there's Christ's affection for us. That's the internal attitude that becomes compassion, which is the action of Christ toward us. And these things are all incentives to, to get together when we divide to love each other when people are doing things that, that put us off and make it difficult to understand and, and love them. I have a friend who, who, who told me about his grandfather who used to slip candy and quarters and things like that in his pockets. He'd go over to spend the day with his grandfather and his grandfather would stick, stick candy in his pocket or he'd put a quarter in his hip pocket. And he learned after a while, when he got home, to check his pockets. There was always a surprise in there. That's what Paul is saying. Check your spiritual pockets. You'll be surprised at what you'll find there. There's that encouragement that comes from Christ's love for us. There is the comfort that's the result of, of knowing that we're loved even though we fail. There's that incentive to walk together because we're indwelt by the same Spirit. There is this incredible affection and love and compassion that God has for us. And all of these things make us... Make us want to get together. And so Paul says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And by the way, two of the words that are used here are based on the same root that's used in his appeal to Iodia and Syndicate when he says, Iodia and Syndicate agree in the Lord, be minded the same way. He uses that same root here, which again ties the whole epistle together, you see. Being of the same mind. Make my joy complete. Make my day, Paul says, by getting along. That's the point. You have these incentives, now get along. And, and, And here's what you should do. This is how you get along. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. That's the way we ought to think about ourselves. We shouldn't consider ourselves the center of the world. We shouldn't believe that we have all that we, that, you know that, that we have to act on all of our rights and use our privileges and prerogatives. We shouldn't think about ourselves that way. In fact, we shouldn't center on ourselves at all. But rather, we we ought to think about others. And then in verse 4, he says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Don't think about yourself and don't look out for yourself. Think about others and look out for others. That's how you get together. 
The secret of unity is humility. The way to, to get together is not to decide who's right, but to set aside your rights. Now, we have rights. There's no doubt about that. We have certain inalienable rights. And sometimes we have to stand on a right because it's right. But mostly, Paul says, we, we ought to be willing to give up our rights in order to create unity and maintain unity, you see. Don't think about yourself. Don't center on yourself. Don't try to feather your own nest. Don't always be thinking about how to further your own uh, uh, program. Don't, don't do that. He says, think about others. And that's such a staggering concept. It has to be documented. And the way he documents this idea is to allude to the example of Christ. If you want an example of someone who gave up his rights, look at Jesus. He was God. What greater right could anyone have than the rights of God? But he didn't insist on his rights. He gave it up. He humbled himself. And Paul says that's the way to get along. That's the only way to get along. He didn't stalk around demanding that everyone recognize him and appreciate him. Give him the honor that he was due. Didn't get angry and upset and resentful because they didn't give him what he deserved. He could have said, as, as we're being told today by the world, I deserve the best today. But he didn't do that. He set it all aside for us. That's why Paul goes on to say, God has highly exalted him. That's the principle we've been learning. Week after week, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He exalts the humble. If we don't look out for ourselves, God will look out for us. But if we try to look out for ourselves, we may lose it all. You don't lose anything through humility. You have everything in the world to gain. The way up is down. The way down is up. And the classic example is Jesus. He gave it up. And God gave it all back to him. Therefore, we're told, he is highly exalted and given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So people ask me, what's this world coming to? That's what it's coming to. One day, every knee will bow to Jesus. There is enormous power in that name, just in the name. Lee Ivins was telling me uh, before the morning service that uh, when she was in her 20s, she was an atheist. But uh, whenever anyone mentioned the name of Jesus, it touched something in her. She bristled, she said, just like a porcupine, because that name itself has authority. Well, how did our Lord get that authority back? Well, you see, he came down. The way up is down. God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus. This book is, is just filled with allusions to this principle. Paul says himself earlier in, in chapter 1, I, I sure would like to die, he says. It's an odd thing to say unless you're a Christian. But... Uh, 
He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm tired. He says, I'm worn out. I ache all over. I want to go home. I can hardly wait to get there. But he says, better for you if I stay behind. Therefore, I know that's what God wants me to do. Be better for me to go. I've got nothing to lose and everything to gain by dying. But uh, for your sake, I'm going to stick around. And uh, a little bit later in chapter 2, Paul refers to Timothy in verse 19. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Listen to this. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. People like that are in short supply. People like that are a premium. People who really care about others rather than themselves. Then he goes on to allude to the to another of his friends, Epaphroditus, who had the same attitude. He was sick, and yet he served. And, and he was concerned about them because they were concerned about his sickness. And he, 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 he thought more of them than he thought of himself. So all the way through, Paul is making the same point. The way you get along is just don't think about yourself. Don't try to feather your own nest. Don't look out for yourself, your own interests. But just serve. And if you want an example, if you get tired of serving and you get a little bit resentful about the whole thing, remember Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God. But he emptied himself. And he became subject to another. And he was made in the likeness of man. That's what it means to give up your rights. No greater rights were ever set aside than those. He had those rights. But he set them aside. That's the key to unity in the church. You know, people get upset because their rights aren't uh, recognized. They have gifts that aren't being appreciated. They don't have opportunities to, to use those gifts in a public way, or they do, and someone forgets to say thank you. We're all human, and those things happen, so they get miffed, and, and they, they, they get upset, and Pretty soon they gather a little group around them and they begin to talk about what's going on in that church and the church just splits right down the center. Paul says, don't do that. You don't have to be recognized. You don't have to be known. You don't have to be seen. We need to work towards showing appreciation and love for people. But if you get overlooked, think about Jesus. Was anyone ever overlooked like our Lord? Or men start thinking about their marriages and they, they're, you know, they're not being treated well and they deserve much better than they're getting. And, and they, they, they split up their marriages because they, they're not getting what they deserve. Or women think, well, my husband doesn't appreciate me. All I do is work around here. I'm a slave. My kids don't appreciate me. They never say thank you. I don't have any space. I need to go out and, and make something of myself, go out where I'm appreciated. And they forget the mind of Christ. He just served. He just kept on serving. And he waited for God to recognize him. And God did. God highly exalted him. And we men need to exalt our wives now. Let's not wait until the Lord comes back to do it. And vice versa. But if you're not getting that exaltation, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. You'll get it. One of the... One of the uh, my favorite stories is the story in the Old Testament about Abraham and Lot. They, they had a hard time. Uh, Abraham and Lot did because their herdsmen couldn't get along. Wasn't enough grass to go around. 
Abraham owned the whole land. God had given him the title deed to the land of Palestine, from Dan to Beersheba. He had the whole thing. And he could have said to Lot, get lost. Take your, take your herd down there in, in Sinai. This is my land. We're not going to have this sort of trouble anymore. But you know what Abraham did? Took Lot up on top of the mountain where they could see the whole land, and he let Lot choose. And Lot chose the best, the land of Sodom. It's not much today, but uh, back then it was, it was uh, well-watered, fertile, the most fertile part of, uh, of the, of the uh, ancient Near East. Lot chose the best. As someone has put it, Lot chose grass. Abraham chose grace. He just let God choose for him. And you know what happened. Lot lost it all. And Abraham got it all back. Didn't have to fight for his own rights. He just gave it up. Could have said, this is mine. By rights, this is mine. I deserve it. I deserve the best. But he gave it up. And God exalted him in due time. I don't know about you, but I, I find it very hard to do that. I, I, I don't do it very well. I have done it very well this past week. I've gone around demanding my rights, and, uh, and I'm sure you have too. That's why Paul goes on in this chapter, in chapter 2, to say, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The salvation he's talking about is not ultimate salvation. It's this process of sanctification. And in context, he's talking about this matter of giving up your own rights. Work out this aspect of your salvation with fear and trembling. That is, with a real sense of inadequacy. But he says, it's God who is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Take supernatural resources to give up your own rights. You just have to start asking for it. Lord, give me the mind of Christ. Give me the attitude that characterized him when he gave it up for me. Let's stand together. It's prayer that makes truth real and personal to us. Let's pray that God will not only teach us this truth, but make it happen in our lives. Lord, we approach a a passage like this with with a tremendous sense of awe. We don't understand it. There's mystery here. We could never explain adequately what, what happened. But uh, we know that it did happen. The eternal God became man and lived among us. We can't imagine a greater emptying or humbling. And uh, we thank you for it. We know that our salvation is dependent upon it. Had you insisted upon your rights, none of us would ever have known you or have come to love you. And and so we ask that we would we would learn this principle, teach it to us, Lord. We know that we can't do it merely by deciding to do it, gritting our teeth and determining to do it. It has to come as as the Spirit of God works in our heart, changes us and makes us more like you. We thank you that that we go from one degree of likeness to you by means of the Spirit. And this is one aspect of your likeness that we long for, Lord. Teach us to to give up our rights and to serve others. We're counting on you for that, Father. We ask that during this Christmas season, as as we see the creches around us and all the symbols of, of Christmas, 
that we would remember your attitude, your willingness to give up for our sake. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.